KOSU is a service of Oklahoma State University, and podcasts are made possible through the financial support of KOSU listeners. If you're a donor, thank you. And if not, go to KOSU.org and make your donation there. Our radio service is only possible thanks to the generosity of listeners like yourself. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahoma wins its lawsuit against opioid maker Johnson & Johnson. Cleveland County District Judge Thad Balkman sided with the state and ordered the company to pay $572 million to the state. Now, this still has to go through the the appeals process. But Neva, what do you think of the verdict? Well, I think for many, it wasn't a surprise. I mean, the uh, uh, Judge Balkman basically went down the line talking about that uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson was acting unlawfully, the misleading marketing component, influencing the doctors. I think yeah, I think when we look at it, there are a lot of other questions that are going to come up already that are being raised, that, uh, that the uh, judge clearly, uh, with this ruling, it may greatly expand uh, liability uh, tort law a lot of the uh, uh, editorials that I've seen, even the Wall Street Journal, you know, weighing in with a lot of uh, issues that they're raising from the business perspective. So I think uh, Johnson & Johnson saying they're going to appeal, the attorney general saying, come on, write the check. I think this is just the first, uh, you know, kind of the first in the aftermath of this ruling to see where we go from here. Right. Well, I mean, a couple of, you know, Oklahoma won here. I mean, this this is incredibly an important victory, both in terms of abating the nuisance and the nuisance. And we're not just talking about a nuisance. It's a public nuisance. And that's where Neva's talking about, you know, the expansion of tort law here and the expansion of, you know, potential liability for other types of companies that are affecting the health of Oklahomans. And so, or around the nation. I mean, nuisance laws differ from state to state, but there's a lot of common themes there. And so the precedent that this sets by applying nuisance law to the opioid crisis in the state of Oklahoma is incredibly important and, and is one of the most significant things coming out of this. Um, but we're talking about a nuisance that's caused over 6,000, at least over 6,000 deaths in the state of Oklahoma already, you know, you know, tens of thousands, others lives that have been touched and ruined and ravaged by this disease uh, that was perpetrated on the people of Oklahoma by a company seeking profits over people. And so, you know, I think that at the at the end of the day, we're, we're looking at a uh, $500 plus million dollar verdict. That's about a year of what it's going to take to abate the nuisance for a year. That's well less than the $15 billion that the state of Oklahoma was talking about here in terms of damages. I mean, we're, the state of Oklahoma said it's going to take 20 years to dig us out of this hole. Judge Bachman said that the state of Oklahoma only put forward enough evidence for him to be able to require a damage amount that abates the nuisance for a year. Now, an interesting part of this is that Judge Bachman said that he's going to retain jurisdiction over the process of abating the nuisance. And there's a potential that at the end of this year that the state of Oklahoma could come back to the court and say, we need more to abate this nuisance in year mm -hmm. two, year three, year four or five, and, and, and so on. So there is some increase, there is some <clears throat> continuing liability for Johnson & Johnson here. Um, but, you know, the idea that the state of Oklahoma now has put together, as, as Attorney General uh, Hunter said, a billion dollars, with both with Johnson, with the Johnson & Johnson verdict and with the settlements prior to this verdict, um, you know, a billion dollars to abate this crisis in the state of Oklahoma. I, th I think it's interesting when we think about uh, 20 years ago with the tobacco settlement and the fact that you had the industry during that length of time, during 20 years, they paid out $125 billion to the states, 48 states involved. And yet when you see now the the outcome is that according to the Centers for D Disease Control and Prevention, less than 3% uh, of that is actually going to, 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 to deal with the real 
subject. And you've you've got an issue here where when you have a public health uh, related matter, uh, in that instance, uh, tobacco, and you have uh, these years of, of trying to do something about it and yet have that little result, I think it, it, it really begs the question looking at this going forward with abatement in this issue with the opioid crisis is how can they better tackle the issue? And, and it ju- it's not just an issue where you have uh, the money going to things that, uh, you know, if you go state by state, there's these uh, horrendous stories of where that uh, settlement money has uh, been used, and it wasn't to do for for what it was originally intended. Well, the good news is that I mean, with tobacco, you can buy that over the counter, so it's a little bit harder, but opioids, you actually have to get a prescription, so maybe there's something that can be done. Uh, but, in terms of, but in terms of the settlement and the dollars used and expended by the states to, to do the prevention, to do the education, to do the things that are necessary, that's where I think the uh, focus needs to be. And, and clearly, even Commissioner Terry White uh, this week said, Look, we can be, you know, on the cutting edge. We can be on the forefront of establishing something that that may work better than than anyone could suppose. And, and if Judge Bachman had given a fifteen billion dollar verdict here, I think that that speculative nature of you know a verdict that looks twenty years into the future would have been much more ripe for an appeal. And so, by narrowing it to a year, I think that it's a, it's an airtight verdict. I would be surprised if the Supreme Court touches this. Opponents to permitless carry are hoping they have enough signatures to recall the measure and place it before voters. Now, we are recording this on Thursday, so we don't know the total yet. We do know Stillwater City Council voted unanimously to support the petition, while Oklahoma City Council voted against the petition by a vote of five to four. Ryan, does this have a chance? Well, I think that, you know, I've talked to some of the the leaders within the the petition gathering effort. They said that they're going to, they think they're going to get close and maybe even get over the mark. Of course, you know, close doesn't count. Uh, You know, this this isn't horseshoes and hand grenades. It's it's an initiative petition. You've got to get the requisite number of signatures. But I think that in a very short period of time, even if they just get close, I think that it demonstrates the intensity of voters and the disconnect between where Oklahomans are at on wanting reasonable gun laws and where their legislature is at. And we, we see that on a number of issues where there's a, there's a real disconnect. I think this is one where that disconnect really exists. Oklahomans, by and large, I mean, even even Oklahomans, you know, they, they purportedly support the Second Amendment, you know, whatever whatever it means to support the Second Amendment. I don't think that most Oklahomans want that uh, interpretation of supporting the Second Amendment to mean that you carry an AR-15 into Walmart and Starbucks. And that's what this open carry law is going to allow. And it's going to allow that without any sort of training uh, or really regulation at all. So um, I think that even if they just get close, it's going to demonstrate that there's a real appetite for Oklahomans to change this. And if the legislature won't do it, I think that we'll probably see another ballot initiative coming forward. If this is a referendum. This is to undo something the legislature did. The people could still go forward with an initiative on their own and create a new law that repeals it. And even some of the numbers I've seen is 80% of people, uh, they, they support you know gun laws and stuff, but they also believe that people should have some kind of a licensing, permitting, training process, up to 80%. So that's a pretty big number. I think a lot of times you see those kind of numbers in the polling, but but if it gets to a ballot measure, I think we may see a very different climate out there. And and with, with respect to the petition gathering right now on this particular uh, matter, the 60,000 signatures needed, which means you need more than 60,000 right. to pass, you know, to be able to really uh, uh, pass the test and, and get that on the ballot, is a pretty daunting challenge, I think, uh, to this group right now. If it doesn't happen, I mean, no question, I think this is an issue that's not going to go away. I did think it was interesting on the Oklahoma 
the city council that they uh, that they rejected the measure to uh, to, to support this, unlike mm-hmm. what you said with Stillwater and their right. council, and the mayor being on the uh, on the dissenting side. I mean, he he was the on the on the five four vote. He was with the four supporting the measure. So. Uh, um, I think I think there is a lot of give and take on, on this issue in terms of trying to trying to bring it to a vote of the people. It will be interesting to see what happens next year and whether or not this gets infused back into the legislative uh, uh, the legislative mix with bills that may come up early in the session. And you know, legislators operate like on guns on a lot of issues. It's this cognitive feedback loop where they think that they've got to do this, and you know the. The you know, we keep hearing about the tremendous amount of support that this law had at the legislature. I don't think that there's a lot of personal intensity on the part of most lawmakers. Most lawmakers saw a vote of convenience and a vote of pol- what they considered political necessity. Uh, and then when we look at the city council, I forget who it was on, on Twitter uh, this week. They said that you know several years ago, this vote would have been eight to one. And so the fact that it was five to four, I think, really demonstrates where we are in 2019 and recognizing what gun violence is and knowing that the best way to prevent gun violence is to reduce the number of guns that are out there in circulation. And I think you'll have a hard time making that case with a lot of folks that are strong Second Amendment people who believe that that just to say that uh, passing passing a law is going to change that or get these guns off the streets or get them out of the hands of the people that don't need them uh, or shouldn't be, you know, shouldn't have access to them is, is an argument that uh, becomes very complicated. And I think with respect to politicians, I think we've seen time and time again these elected folks, uh, when it gets down to the wire and they have to make that vote, I mean, it, it becomes a much different proposition. And I think we'll see that uh, that the uh, Second Amendment uh, folks will still be very strong in the state of Oklahoma. And this may be where the gun lobby is overreached. I, I think that if when Oklahomans start to encounter what open carry actually looks like, it's, it's going to be too late this year for the state fair. But let's think, you know, state fair 2020, you're walking into the state fairgrounds and folks are you know packing uh, long rifles on their back. And they're, they're there wanting to ride the tilt-a-whirl with their kids. I don't care how you feel about guns. We live in a nation right now where everybody kind of has PTSD from all of these uh, mass shootings. When you see that in your face, you're not thinking, oh, man, that's a good guy with a gun that's going to help us in the event of a mass shooting. That's a, why does this person have this gun? I don't know what their intentions are. And... You know, it's going to be scary, and I think that that real fear that Oklahomans are going to start to feel is going to begin to overcome the power, the the, the stranglehold that the gun lobbies had on the legislature. I think the notion that that we're going to walk down the street, and most people are going to be, you know, just open carry, and this is going to be some version of the wild wild west, like oftentimes it's being portrayed, is just not. I I don't think it's a real scenario, and I think what we'll see is as people get more accustomed to um, uh, just this reality out there, they will become. Uh, they they will not become as concerned as I think some of the hysteria is try- and hype is trying to create. Except on a regular basis, we're seeing the Second Amendment tests where That's people are deal, going out that, with guns. I, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah. I just want to know. It, when I see that on Twitter, I, yes, okay, granted, not everybody's going to be carrying a gun. But even if one person comes into my wife's school saying I'm and carrying a gun, saying I have the right to that scares me well again but these but but schools businesses others i mean you know you do have an opportunity to uh uh to restrict that Mm -hmm. um so i mean there there are there are still allowances to be made that uh, don't just make it uh you know just make it uh, a situation where there is absolutely no control in in that in that environment law enforcement uh, you know would would uh, uh would be in a very difficult spot and and the argument that that somehow 
now we're taking this big leap to, to correct all of the problems that are related to uh, having guns, period, in, in the country is just, I think, a bogus argument. And, and, and municipal governments, we saw this resolution, but I think we're going to see more in the weeds municipal government uh, need to act and give businesses some guidance on, on what to do. So if somebody walks into your business with a gun, do you have a minimum wage employee go approach the person with the semi-automatic weapon and ask them to leave? I mean, that's that doesn't seem fair. So what's the protocol there? When do you call the police? Do you call 911 as in a non-emergency line? You know, those are things that I think municipal governments are going to have to start to work out, hopefully before this goes into effect on November 1. Oklahoma City voters are going to the polls December 10th to decide on MAPS 4. The proposal passed unanimously by the city council could raise about $978 million over the next eight years. The penny sales tax would go to a new multi-purpose sports arena, city parks, transit, housing for the homeless, youth and senior centers, as well as mental health facilities, a juvenile detention center, and more, and really more. There's a lot more to that. <laughs> Neva, what do you think of MAPS 4? Well, I think it's interesting. It's a real shift. It's a shift from uh, using the uh, using the monies for the big projects to really earmarking them for neighborhoods and human needs. And I think when you look at MAPS 3, the budget was basically 12% allocated to the neighborhoods. In, in the proposed MAPS 4, we're looking at 70% of this estimated uh, $978 million that would be used in, in neighborhoods and, and revitalization and human need human needs, reducing uh, domestic violence, kind of the whole gamut that you just that you just mentioned, uh, with a few with a few sports uh, related entities factored in there. Uh, so it kind of runs the it runs the gamut, mm-hmm. and I think it will be interesting to see uh, with the public the the city council unanimously uh, supported and approved it. So I think there'll be a full court press to uh, uh, to make sure that they get the message out to all of the the folks that would be uh, not only involved but uh, affected in a in a positive way uh, before the December ballot and uh, you know maps has been a very successful very successful concept in in Oklahoma City now for decades and I think that this is a uh, this is a very different look for the maps proposal on maps four and we'll see where it goes forward right and this may be a watershed moment for maps maps has generally received you know a the lion's share of support of politicians, of, of community activists. You know, there on this one, I think that we may begin to see some divisions here. The unanimous vote on the city council doesn't really tell the whole story. There were uh, there were several votes from council members that I think were reluctant votes. You know, they felt like if we're going to get anything out of this, we've got to support this. And when we talk about you know a little for for sports teams, I mean, two hundred and fifteen million dollars. You know, part of that goes to professional soccer field. Some of that's going to the Thunder. When you look at that in comparison to just. $38 million for the Palomar Family Justice Center and a new animal shelter, $22 million for a restoration center for mental health crises and substance abuse services. I mean, those numbers are kind of paltry in comparison to what we're spending on sports teams in, this, in, in Oklahoma City now. And I, whenever you put all of that stuff together, and you know, we talk about things like log rolling, and there's a prohibition of, this, of uh, having something more than a single subject and a ballot measure. And the reason is, is that we don't want people to have to vote for something that they don't like in order to get something that they do like. You know, we should have a straight up and down vote on that. And that's what former Councilman Ed Shadid is right. asserting here. I think he's going to bring a lawsuit challenging uh, the violation of the single subject rule with a MAPS project here. What he would pr- suggest is that every one of these items is an individual ballot item that voters get to up or down vote on. And I think that he's got a strong argument there. And so we could see MAPS, this ma- this current MAPS proposal end up in litigation and reconfigured by the courts. But all of the MAPS proposals in the past, including the initial MAPS, uh, had a a 
had a number of projects that were, you know, that were outlined uh, in that particular package. So the idea that with these 16 projects, I mean, you talk about some of those numbers being paltry compared to the sports, but 70% of that of that total uh, number of projects are projects that are neighborhood projects, not sports complexes, not, you know, not on the other side of the, uh, of the equation. So I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see whether there is litigation, but I think when you look at this, the one thing that is a takeaway that I think is refreshing that people should be reminded that there were 26 hours of presentations through the summer everyone had an opportunity to bring their idea to the table and out of that it was a very broad mix that's come and and I think I think you're right Ryan I think a lot of folks will look at this and say there's some of this I really don't like or don't think frankly that we should be uh, uh, that we should be funding with a, a penny sales tax uh, but but nevertheless that's that's the reality of where we are with this particular proposal and councilman Ed, former councilman Edgedeed also said that we are not ready for a recession with this budget is, is there concern about that. I think that there is concern with that. I think that one of the things that we've looked at in, in past MAPS proposals is do we have ongoing operations budgets ready to sustain these programs that we're initially building with infrastructure through the one cent uh, sales tax? And, you know, we, you know that remains to be seen with some of the projects that are ongoing from the, from the existing MAPS project. And, you know, and I, and Neva, you're absolutely right. You know, the map, past MAPS uh, proposals have included multiple things. I mean, I think that the, the convention center funding for the la- for the current maps proposal, a lot of folks, you know, the, that polling in that was like in the dirt, yeah. and the only way that it was going, you know, if that was on its own, people of Oklahoma City weren't going to subsidize that, but they put it in with other things that the people of Oklahoma City would subsidize. So I don't think that past practice remedies a constitutional defect in this current maps proposal. I mean, the city will argue, hey, we've done this in the past, and, and nobody said it. Course. But I think that ultimately the courts are going to have to determine whether or not the single subject. Uh, subject requirement in the state constitution applies to municipal ballot measures. And if it does, I think that this map proposal is in trouble. Epic Virtual, Vir- Epic Virtual Charter School is getting $113 million for the next school year, despite multiple investigations and allegations of embezzlement. In fact, Epic officials expect to grow from the current 24,000 students to 30,000 sometime this year. Ryan, should Epic still be getting state funding while under investigation? I mean, I think that it would be very difficult for the State Department of Education right now to say that pending these, the outcome of these investigations, where they're not complete. I mean, the, the allegations here are incredibly troubling. They're uh, just allegations. They're though. just allegations, though. And the, I think that even the more important consideration for the State Department of Education is that you've got 30,000-plus students, all these families that have planned on this as their plan for the school year. If in July or August you hit the eject button and say, we're not going to do this, we're going we're gonna to cancel funding for, for Epic right now, you create a lot of disruption for the educational plans for a lot of students and families. Um, there are so many conversations around, you know, you know, whether Epic, you know, should exist, you know, if they do exist in what format, should they be spending million plus dollar ad budgets, which they're doing right now to try to compete with other schools is Epic right for some students, but not for other students. And why aren't we funding all schools the way that Epic is able to fund themselves? I mean, those are a lot of big questions, but I think the department of education made the right move by saying, We've got to have some continuity with the school year, and to yank the funding right now would just, you know, be a real disservice to the students, regardless of what folks think about Epic right now. Yeah. I think that's right, and 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 the State Department of Ed, uh, with some direction from the OSBI and the and the uh, that is investigating this, and let's remember that this has been this investigation has been going on since 2013. This just didn't happen a few weeks ago or a few months ago. This has been a long, ongoing investigation. It's complex uh, by every account, and. 
and it will be interesting to see how long it takes for uh, for there to be some you know final movement on this. Uh, the OSBI met uh, again uh, just this week with Oklahoma County District Attorney, second time this year, uh, and uh, the case is clearly and the investigation is uh, kind of moving through the moving through the process. But there's no resolution yet, and in the meantime, by Epic's account, there will be approximately thirty thousand students uh, enrolled in their in their programs uh, this school year and we'll just have to see it's not the only charter or, or uh, charter program virtual, virtual school program school, yeah. or any of the, of these other uh, alternatives that are out there and it, it does beg the question I mean what happens if there is a change but the bigger question is if parents see this as a need and a want as opposed to traditional schools uh, then what's the what will be the aftermath in terms of where they go if not here what's the next step is there an idea that maybe this should be a state program just like a state school that this should not be a privatized company yeah i mean i think that if if they're if parents are seeing a need for a virtual school where you know where their students are you know not homeschool but have professional educators doing curriculum and you know potential in-person meetups i mean these are these are things that if parents are saying this is right for my student you know this is the the path for success for my student then the state of Oklahoma needs to say, well, why is that? And, and you know, are there, are there things that we can do to provide these services in existing schools? And if we can't provide that service in an existing school, then I think the state should consider, you know, we, we're in the business of running schools. Uh, we've been doing it for a very long time. Maybe we need to be running that virtual charter. But there's or, always been a school. need and, and, and yeah. a desire to have a, a, options, whether it's public school, private school, parochial school, homeschool. I mean, parents in the state of Oklahoma have always been uh, very direct and I think very forthright in wanting options and believing that they should have, you know, multiple options of upper consideration when it comes to educating their children. So I think this is a, a broader discussion, as you say, that will go forward and how the public schools dialogue in this conversation, I think is very important. Just to say these people should go away and we're the only option in town, I think I think it's a pretty clear message from the parents in Oklahoma that that is not true. I mean, they've basically created the third largest school district in the state, third or fourth largest behind, behind Oklahoma, Oklahoma, City, behind and Tulsa. Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Yeah. Yes, uh, and so I mean, yeah, there's there's obviously an appetite for this out there, and you know, there's you know the policymakers, whether you're on a school board or in, in the state legislature, you really need yeah, to, start to suggest thinking about, that thirty thousand parents, uh, you know, parents of thirty thousand kids mm-hmm. uh, are wrong. I mean, uh, or just should summarily change just because is not a good not a good idea but imagine if the state were running this and the right. million plus dollar education or mil, million plus dollar advertising budget that epic's using right now subsidized by state funds were pumped into the classrooms or pumped into virtual classrooms i mean you know to me that's the difference is that you've got a uh, a, a for-profit uh, whichever entity. entity they have a budget they have they have a need to uh, figure out how to best utilize the dollars that they have available to educate the kids that come into their you know into their classroom whatever that looks like Governor Stitt supports local communities voting to raise their property taxes to pay for local schools. The governor told Tulsa Regional Chamber members he is researching ways to fix the funding option to improve education. Neva, raising property taxes isn't always a winning proposition from a Republican. Uh, yeah, that's that's one that's a, a pretty a pretty tough uh, tough 
tough one to go down the road on. And I think, you know, when, when the governor says, you know, let's think outside the box, let's look at all of these options. When you talk about school districts and, and changing uh, the state's equalization formula for school funding and, and looking at these uh, avenues, yeah, there are options. Uh, will the public have an appetite for that? Will there be the, the opportunity for success in some counties to be able to, you know, the community say, yes, this is what we're willing to do to better fund education in our, in our area? Maybe Maybe so. But uh, I think what he did was kind of launch the, the conversation out there uh, earlier this week. And, and, and in his first state of the state in Tulsa, uh, he, uh, he not only advanced uh, this notion, but several others. So I think, I think we're going to see, I think we're going to continue to see these things kind of launched out there for the conversation starter. But where it goes from here, I think uh, some of these uh, are a little harder to, uh, a little harder to sell when they actually get them out there in the communities for conversation. Right. Ryan. Well, the equalization formula is there to make sure that whether you're a kid in Sasakwa or you're a kid going to Jinx, that you have access to the same basic level of educational opportunities. Because at, at the end of the day, you know, those students are all part of Oklahoma. You know, we're all Oklahomans, and as Oklahomans, we've made a commitment through our public education system that regardless of where you're born and, and where you grow up, that you have the same the access to the same level of education. Now, there are disparities in these school districts, and because we've got areas of poverty, it's difficult to recruit folks to go live in a place like Sasakwa if you're not already from there. And so, uh, and where it's different for Jinx, right? I mean, there there are different levels of opportunity. There are already disparities in the system. If we move to a formula that, like the one that Governor Stitt's talking about, where communities like Jinx, school districts like Jinx, could pass revenue raising measures on the backs of property taxes and further increase that disparity, I think we're moving in the wrong direction. I think that the better way to think about this isn't how do we give local communities the ability to raise revenue without having to put it on the desk of the governor. I mean, that's really what this is about, right? The legislature doesn't have to go on the hook for raising taxes to pay more for public schools. The governor doesn't have to sign a bill raising taxes. He's going to put it on local communities to do that. And if they want to do it, great. And they suffer the political consequences, if any. Really what we should be looking at is how do we fund all of our schools from Sasakwa to Wewoka to Jinx in a way that's fair and is really investing in our students. And the best way to do that is through revenue raising measures at the state level that invest uh, in school districts equally through the equalization formula. I do agree that relying entirely on sales tax uh, at the municipal, yeah. I mean, he talked some about that. Mm -hmm. Boy, we should relook look at that. I mean, the sales taxes are regressive and it's a difficult way to, to run and finance a government. Um, you know, so he had some interesting ideas there, but I, I think that this one really needs to be on the laps of legislators and the governor, not on local communities. When he was talking about using Jinx as the example, he also said that in letting communities uh, raise more for the schools, the other thing that needs to happen is that the state's school grading system needs to be, you know, definitely in place to measure progress. And I think that's the that's the other that's the other part of this equation that oftentimes gets left out. It is important to get the money, but you've got to see where the progress is being made. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KLSU, its staff, or management.